Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. All right, all right, everybody. So good to see you guys uh, this morning. How y'all liking this new setup? Is it weird? A little bit? Yeah, anytime you change something, it's a little weird. But uh, if you haven't been here before, you would not know. You think, oh, no, it's great. It's normal. So uh, we're really glad that uh, you're here and able to be together today. And if you are, are worshiping with us online, uh, obviously, we're glad to be able to connect with you that way uh, as well. It's going to be a great day. We're continuing a series called uh, The Table. My name is Dan. Uh, I am the pastor here and I would love to get to know you myself, uh, maybe out in the foyer after this. Uh, we got a whole team out there that uh, would love to connect with you and help you. Uh, in any way they possibly can. Answer any questions you have. Uh, if you need anything, they're there. Just look for those orange tags uh, that are out there. We're going to be end up in Acts 10 today, the book of uh, Acts in the New Testament. So you can go ahead and kind of put your finger there, but we're going to take a little bit of a journey to get there. Uh, we've got a lot of scripture uh, to cover today. Uh, if you are new here, we like scripture. Uh, we like opening the Bible. We believe that it's God's word to us. Uh, it's reliable. Uh, it's uh, uh, helpful and authoritative for us uh, to be able to understand how we're supposed to live, relate to God, and how we're supposed to relate to life uh, and one another. And so we dig into it at a significant uh, endeavor intentionally every week. And so we're going to do that in just a second. But uh, uh, if you are new, uh, we're circling around this idea uh, of the table. Uh, and uh, the reason we introduced this on the outset this fall was just to really, really try to peer into one of the themes or the motifs from one of the gospel writers. Uh, Jesus, uh, if you're new to Scripture, had four biographers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and they told the story from different perspectives, almost like an eyewitness account, if you will, uh, if you would, were to see a phenomenon or an incident or a situation, and there were four of you, uh, you would all obviously relate a little bit of a different information, though you had seen the same thing. And, and with that, you would bring to it what you felt was really important, uh, what stood out to you. And so Luke was no different. Luke uh, brought to the idea of Jesus... Uh, uh, this idea to write a detailed account of everything that went on with Jesus. And one of the ways that he tied the whole thing together was through themes. Uh, oftentimes uh, writers do this uh, and uh, they'll try to tie an idea together to give you some kind of hooks to hold on to or a thread to tie everything together so that you can see where the whole story is going. And so Luke did that. And one of the themes that he used was the theme of the table. And so you see this uh, popping up over and over again in Jesus' story where he's eating with people, they're interacting with people. And oftentimes, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. And tied to that for Luke is a teaching to help us to understand a little bit more accurately who God is, what God's about, and how Jesus displays and manifests this God to us. And so we've learned that uh, everyone has a seat on the table. We've talked about that. We've talked about what it means for all of us to have a gift that we all come to serve the table and God gives us the opportunity not just to uh, be partakers at the table, but he wants us, each one of us to serve at the table. Uh, we talked about the fact that uh, at the table, there's a, uh, there's a, a bigger table is going to take a, wider, a longer guest list. Uh, we've talked about a lot of things like that. Well, today we're going to take a, a, another uh, step forward in this because uh, sometimes uh, when we look at Jesus, it, it, we kind of default a little bit, let's just be honest, because it's Jesus. Uh, and we think, well, I mean, that was Jesus, obviously. And uh, 
Uh, of course, I'm not. And so this is an imperfect situation. Uh, no one would have to, no one could argue against that. Uh, we're imperfect people. This is an imperfect situation. We're not Jesus. But how do people like you and I, how do we take this concept of the table and actually live this out as a thread for our life, a motif or a theme for our life? Uh, we really believe here at Journey that God wants us to come to the table. And he wants us to create a longer table, a bigger table. He wants us to build new tables. Uh, and he wants us to all serve the table. So what does that look like? Well, in order to do that today, we're gonna use our running display down here as somewhat of an illustration to get us going. And in order to do this, uh, I'm gonna need six volunteers, okay? You're not gonna have to do anything crazy. Okay, you two right there. Ken and Joe, you wanna come up? Okay. Hey, great job, Footloose. That's not, it was really good. Uh, I need, how many more? I need three more. Just come down here, and what I want you to do is pull a, Jason, come on, come on. Just pull out a chair, sit at the table. Andrea, pick up, pull out a chair. I need one more. There we go, thanks man. All right, so this is kind of, this is kind of the way, I hate when things scratch across the floor. I'm gonna come down here with you. Um, so last week we covered this idea that the church was really started out around the table, right? We remember we went through the whole theme of uh, it began as a house move, house church movement. Uh, anybody remember what happened next? Anybody? Cathedral, went to a cathedral and the cathedral was kind of shaped like a cross if you had an aerial view. Uh, anybody remember the next phase? Yeah, colonial, and colonial was more where there was a pulpit, like a traditional, what we would associate maybe even in the South with a pulpit. Sometimes it was elevated off to the side or whatnot, uh, but it was uh, really trying to communicate the primacy of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. Uh, and then we kind of moved to where we are today, which is more of a theater style, right? We have a stage, those type of things, and, and it kind of speaks to our culture. It's, a, it's more of a cultural development because we live somewhat in an entertainment culture, obviously what we're trying to do here is not entertain, but uh, it's something that uh, is accessible to us. We understand that. If you're not norm, uh, used to church, you would even come in here and say, well, okay, this feels somewhat comfortable. It's kind of like going to a movie. I understand we're looking forward together. Uh, I go into a concert, we're singing together. I, I'm listening to a TED talk. We're none of those things, but we, all, we understand that culturally, right? Well, if you go back to the table, we talked last week about Acts chapter two. And in Acts chapter two, the church got together and they shared meals. Uh, as a matter of fact, that little meal of communion that we do uh, once a month here at the end of the month where we celebrate God's uh, gift of his body and his blood uh, through communion or the Lord's Supper, uh, it didn't begin out uh, with a, a prepackaged little thing that you pull apart. You know, those are a little confusing with a little piece of, you're wondering, is it bread or styrofoam? Let's just be honest. Yeah, you, you pull that out. It, it was not like that. It was this. It was people, and I love the fact we've got some people that were a little hesitant to come to the table, Jason, uh, uh, at the table. Uh, we've got different ages at the table. We've got different gender at the table. And this beautiful thing that happened in Jerusalem at Acts 2, uh, it, it was unbelievable. I mean, so unbelievable that uh, what happened from Acts 1 to chapter 2, just in that short time span, we went from 120 disciples to over 3,000 overnight. And the immediate thing that they did was what we all do. They said, what are we going to do with all these people? Well, all we did was we just spread out the room a little bit more. Uh, but they said, we're going to move into homes. We're going to get around the table. And they did. 
And then it was a beautiful thing. We got the description in Acts chapter two. Remember last week, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, all those type of things. And the Lord was continuing to add to their number daily those that were being saved. Well, when this table became more tables, things got a little bit more difficult, didn't they? Got a little difficult. But something happened that is under the service that maybe I think we need to pay attention to today. Whereas there is some distinction and difference around this table, the thing that you realize in Acts chapter 2 was that it was still a predominantly Jewish messianic movement. Uh, that means that if you looked around the table, though we may have different genders and different ages, uh, everyone had a commonality as they came from a Jewish background. The reason we know that is it was in Jerusalem that it started. It had a Jewish base uh, and everyone that uh, came to faith uh, that those first few days were Jewish. They were there for Pentecost. And so this was the development. Now, that's not bad. That's the way God designed it. But here's the thing that happens with the table. They're sharing fellowship. I mean, they're laughing, laugh everybody. Ha 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 ha. They're laughing, right? They're eating good food. Pretend you're eating good food. Oh, you got a little something right there. You get your napkin, wipe that off. All right. So we're eating food, we're laughing, we're enjoying it. Uh, the other thing about the church is they all brought something to share. And so um, Andrea would have a word, not that you would ever have a word, Andrea, <laughs> but you would have a word for the group and you would share. We'd go around the room, everybody would might have a song, they might, they might uh, have a teaching, they might have a word of prophecy. And this was a family, brothers and sisters around the table. And it was beautiful. I mean, so much so that uh, last week, everybody's like, oh, I wish church was like that. You know, we all wish church was more like that. But here's the thing that happened naturally. You had this table and unwittingly, some things started to develop. The first thing that started to develop was some boundaries began to be drawn. And, and the first thing that happened was, I'm just gonna call it ignorance. Now, ignorance is not an insult. So don't feel insulted that I'm gonna call you ignorant, okay? Um, ignorance doesn't mean you're dumb. Ignorance means that you don't know something. There's a lot of things that I don't know about. And that's why Google's my friend, you know, and YouTube. Um, I can now know a lot of things I used to not know. And, but what happens around the table is there's a lot of things that are happening out here that we don't know about. Um, we know each other and the longer we're together, the more we know about this. And this is what was happening with this Jewish messianic movement. They were around the table, it was beautiful. Sharing things, eating together, laughing, good food, good friendship, became a family. But ignorance was still there. But not just ignorance, ignorance sometimes leads to another corner. Sometimes ignorance leads to certain assumptions. Um, assumptions about you know, everybody that's not at the table, how they are, what they're like. And we become relatable to the people that we know, the people we're in contact with, but the people outside, we, we, we start to create what I'm gonna call an us-them mentality. We start to say, well, this is the way we are and this is the way they are. And before you know it, this table that was full of laughter and food and joy and all this stuff and that's built around Jesus, the person, the body, and the sacrifice of Jesus, now what started out to be very inclusive becomes very exclusive because ignorance begins to lead to some assumptions. Assumptions about ourselves and assumptions about people that are not ourselves. Now, I'm gonna walk around the table because that's not all that happens. Sometimes when you have those types of assumptions and that ignorance set in, you begin to put up other corners to your table. 
And again, nobody's sitting here thinking about it. They're not trying to do this. This is just something that happens. For some of us, as we go around uh, and just live life together uh, in the church or following Jesus, uh, we begin to take that assumption and that, that ignorance, and it begins to actually start to create another boundary for us. Uh, we begin to actually start to get a sense of pride. We begin to think that the way that we do things and our thoughts and our background are the way everybody should do everything. And we begin to impose not just uh, on ourselves certain things. We begin to say, well, everyone ought to do things this way. People should worship this way. People should dress this way. Maybe that's your experience with church. Uh, Everybody should do it this way. Um, We were talking jokingly about the chairs, you know, because I mean, you can laugh about it, but any change is a big change if you're used to something. Uh, I can remember uh, a church that I used to uh, pastor uh, and I saw James back there. You'll remember this guy. There was this guy named Herschel and he was uh, in his late 90s. And uh, we were, uh, we didn't have a lot of people visiting church back then, but uh, we had a a couple come in. It was their first Sunday and they came in, they sat in the, uh, the beautiful red velvet pew, you know. And uh, about through the first song, Mr. Herschel taps the person, the couple on the shoulder in front of him and says, hey, you can't sit here. That's not your seat. (laughs) Uh, Welcome team, greeter team right there, you know. Um, So they responded by saying, see ya. They got up and they left and we never saw them again. And so we begin to think that our way is the way. And we begin to see a sense of pride And nobody meant to do it, okay? It's not like everybody, they're bad people. Like these are all laughing and joyful people. There's just a natural human phenomenon in our brokenness that we have to be aware of that happens. Because here's the thing, if ignorance and assumptions, and then uh, what was my last one? What? Yeah, I I couldn't even remember my own point. If these things set in long enough, then what ends up happening is there becomes a sense of anger. The tone, the approach is anger and bitterness. We begin to look at the people outside the table that are not sharing what we're sharing, and we begin to look at them with disdain. We begin to look at them with suspicion. Because don't you know, proximity brings intimacy, but distance brings suspicion. And so anytime someone outside does something, we begin to then draw some boundaries. Let's see if this works. I didn't test this out to see if it was going to work. It's probably not going to be far enough. Hold that, Canon Joe, so it doesn't fall over. Perfect. Teamwork. Teamwork. All right, it's going to work. Hold that one, Naga. You're doing good. Is it, will it work? Here, we're going to hang it on your ear. (laughs) You get the idea. We'll do the short ones. That'll make it. This is why you test illustrations before you do them. It's hard to do when you think of them last minute too, so. Shh, don't tell anybody that. We create boundaries. And before you know it, what was designed to be the place for family becomes very exclusive. And it just drifted that way. And so I've got a question for you, okay? And I think this is the question that acts the writer of Acts, Luke, is trying to answer. I'll throw it up here on the screen. You can write it down. The, the question I think that is being answered and asked is how did a primarily Jewish messianic movement expand beyond a Jewish table? Jewish customs. I mean, the fact that you're here today meant that it did. 
there were some obstacles, there were some barriers that had to be overcome in order for you to get to the table. And I would suggest to you today that the same is true going forward, that there are people outside this table that we all know, that you all know, right? That each one of us know at schools or at work or at the softball field. That in all of our lives, around the world, different skin colors, nationalities, ethnicities, that don't feel like they have a place at the table. And it, it's upon us to be able to make the change, to basically take down the barriers and to invite people to the table. So how does that take place? I thank y'all so much for being a visual aid. Y'all can make your way back to the seat. Let's give them a hand as they move. And so how did that happen? Well, let me give you just a, a, a quick uh, quote real quick, <clears throat> because I think Acts answers this question. Uh, Thomas Finn, he said this, he said, early Christianity spread in the packs of migrant Christians who traveled the great trade routes which laced the empire, the empire being the Roman empire. Uh, Rome was famous for its uh, network of highways or its Roman roads. It's not just an evangelism technique, all, uh, all the old uh, uh, Baptist in the room. Uh, it actually was a thing, a historical thing. And it spread upward in the empire's system of social stratification. That just means that it wasn't just, uh, sometimes we think of um, uh, Christianity as only being for the poor. But what ended up happening is it got a foothold in the upper echelon. It began to destroy that stratified structure uh, that was very mapped out within the Roman society. Uh, and because it began to uh, dismantle that, it began to find its way, not just up the lower levels of the socioeconomic scale, but it actually began to in integrate into and invade into some of the upper levels of the so social scale. And so as, as Thomas Finn says, he says it spread upward in the empire system of social stratification on the backs of Christians who traveled the major avenues of social mobility. And not everybody had, uh, nobody, not everybody could travel, okay? Uh, if you're going to plan a trip, uh, some of you are like, man, I can't go on that cruise. I can't afford it. I can't take that vacation. You know, all those types of things. Well, imagine first century um, uh, Christianity. There was not this uh, mobility. Most people did not ever travel beyond 30 miles of their home. And so how did we get over here on North America? How did we all get around the gospel, uh, around Jesus? Well, it started right there. Uh, specifically, careers in legions, in servile and liberal education, and imperial civil service. Uh, this is what happened. Uh, it began to become so uh, in, uh, integral within Roman society that it wouldn't be very long before uh, people start naming their dogs uh, like... Uh, People name their dogs after Roman emperors now, uh, like Nero or something like that. Uh, and now we remember the name of Jesus that that same Roman empire tried to extinguish. And you have to historically ask the question, and this is where faith and life connects, so history and spirituality connects, is how did that happen? How did we get from there to here? And as Thomas Finn says, there was something that actually physically happened. There was, there was a moment in time where technological advances allowed the gospel to move in ways that prior to this time through the Roman Empire could never move forward. And so Luke picks up on this theme and we begin to mix metaphors at this point. We've got the metaphor of the table, but 
Luke does something over Acts 8, 9, and 10. We're gonna land in 10 that show us the progression of the movement outside a Jewish table to us today. How did it move to what we're gonna call a Gentile table? A Gentile is a kind of a blanket term, an umbrella term for anyone that's not uh, Jewish, okay? And the way that he tells the story is beautiful. Um, if you haven't read it, uh, read it again. Read Acts again, maybe, or for the first time. Read it, read it for the first time and read it with this in mind. Acts 1.8 talks about how the gospel is going to progress from Jerusalem, uh, from Judea to Samaria to the other ends of the earth. And then what happens after that? Well, Luke tells the story of the gospel hitting the road. Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, and Acts chapter 10. Just put them all up there real quick for sake of time because I'm running a little bit late. Acts 8, there was an Ethiopian treasurer, remember uh, an Ethiopian eunuch uh, that was traveling on the road and Philip meets him and he's baptized on the road and the gospel moves down into Africa, uh, which we have many Christian fathers that originated in Africa. We're not primarily a European movement. Uh, we're uh, a Near Eastern and African movement. Uh, and that's the story of Christianity. How did it get there? Well, this is one of those ways. Acts chapter nine, then a murdering zealot. Anybody know who that is? Paul, yeah, the apostle Paul, he is the chief adversary of the way. And where did, where did he meet Christ? on a road to Damascus. So God meets him on the road. And then in Acts 10 today, uh, a guy named Cornelius, who is a Roman military official. Uh, he's a centurion of the uh, Italian regiment. He's a Gentile and he's down the road in Caesarea. Uh, I'm gonna cough real quick. Allergies are horrible right now. Um, so you can see the progression, right? And once you get to Acts chapter 10, what begins to happen is Luke dives down and we don't have time to cover it. I'm gonna about to read a bunch of scripture. If, if you wanna read a bunch of scripture today, say, let's go. Let's go. Okay, we got a lot, a lot of ground to cover uh, because I just want you to see the narrative, okay? There's no way for us to cover everything, but I think it will give you a picture that we can draw that thread around at the end. And I think we can draw some practical application from this. In order to get to... Acts chapter 10, the thing that you have to understand is what you're about to read in Acts chapter 10 caused a lot of problems. Uh, don't, um, don't look at this as if like it's, oh, okay, well, everything's great because it's the Bible. This, was, this caused a lot of problems in the church. How do I know? Well, if you read Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, verses one through three, this is at the end of what we're about to read. Just keep this in mind as we're reading it. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. Well, you'd think that was a good thing. So when Peter goes up to Jerusalem, there's our guy, Peter. He goes up to Jerusalem, the hub. The circumcised believers criticized him. What? They're criticizing Peter. Think about this for just a second. Who's Peter? Peter's the one that was the closest to Jesus. Peter was the one where Jesus said, upon you, I'm gonna build my church. Peter was the one that stood up on Pentecost and was the keynote speaker, right? That everybody came to Christ and was baptized. And so now there's been a church that's developed. Peter goes out, something has happened. He comes back to the church at Jerusalem and they're all criticizing Peter. What are they upset about? This is succinctly what it is. You went into the house of, an uncircumcised, of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. You went into the house 
of uncircumcised men and you ate with them? They're having a business meeting. They're calling Peter to task. They're taking him to task. What, is he, what has he done that's so upsetting? He went into the house of a Gentile, uncircumcised men, and he ate with them. There's our table. And so if you want to know how we got here, well, fortunately for them, you could read Acts 11 or we can tell the story. Acts 11, 4, this is what happened starting from the very beginning. Peter told them the whole story. Peter has to explain himself. So let's, let's put the fast forward button. Let's read the story. Let's see what happened. And I'm gonna pray along with you, hopefully, as we read this, that you will introspectively look at this from the perspective of what God may want to reveal to you. I, I don't know what that is. I, I didn't come up here with like, you know, you know, everything loaded, locked and loaded and say, man, I'm gonna let them have it. I, I don't know what God wants to say to you. Um, but I want us all to lean into the authoritative word so that we can hear what he perhaps through the spirit wants to say to us through this narrative. Now, I'm gonna drop in at different parts and pull out at different parts because it's way too much for us to read. We'd be here all afternoon uh, and everybody's got a group to go to and a meal to eat at a real table. So uh, Acts chapter 10, let's back up to the beginning. Let's hit the ground. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. This is Peter. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, oh no, this is Cornelius, sorry, I was the wrong part, to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God and now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. So what we have here is we have God initiating a, a conversation through Cornelius who we're being introduced to at this point that doesn't know Peter. Peter doesn't know him. And so God through the Holy Spirit is working uh, without Peter even knowing about it. And he starts first by like you do build a bridge. He starts at both ends. He starts with Cornelius. But what we're also about to find out is that he's also going to visit and do the same exact thing with Peter. And so he's going to build that bridge from both ends and they're going to meet in the middle. So you've got Cornelius' side, this guy that's uh, uh, obviously, uh, without going into a whole lot of detail, there's a lot of stuff I can recommend for you to read if you want to know more about him and the Italian regiment and all that kind of stuff. But for, for our purposes today, this is just a dude that's out there and he's a military guy. He is friendly to, the, to Judaism. He is somehow taking part in probably in the Sabbath. He's giving alms to the poor. He's doing some of those things. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he has put his faith in Jesus Christ. There's a lot of debate about that. So that's that side. Let's talk about Peter for a second. Skip down to the next uh, section of verses. If you go on to the next slide, we'll throw it up there. This is down in verse 11. Peter now, he sees heaven opened up and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contains all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything 
impure and unclean. I don't have it bolded, but remember that word anything. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now we know this about uh, Jewish customs is they had a very regimented uh, dietary scale. Uh, What they could not eat and what uh, they could eat. Okay, so and this was not selective. They didn't get to select this. This was laid out in the Old Testament law for them of what they they were supposed to eat and not supposed to eat. And so they held to this uh, devoutly. And this was one of the markers of what it meant to be at the table as a, as a Jewish person, okay? What you could eat, what you couldn't eat, who you ate with, who you didn't eat with. Um, and so it took some convincing for Peter. Peter sees this vision and the vision is telling him with all these things that he, his whole life, he's never spent, supposed to have eaten. He's not supposed to be with these type of people. He's not supposed to eat what they eat. And he has been very faithful because if you know anything about Peter, I mean, he's trying to make a presentation. He wants everybody to know that he's doing the right thing. It's kind of part of his character that develops uh, through the whole thing. You, you, you know this. And, and so he tells the angel, he speaks back to the angel because, I mean, he already talked back to Jesus before. He might as well talk back to an angel, right? He talks back to the angel and says, no. I'm not going to do that. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And so it took some convincing. And in verse 15, uh, you get kind of uh, one more step in the convincing. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So what is he telling Peter? Something has changed. Something about the way things used to be are different going forward. What you're used to, what the table's supposed to look like, how how you're supposed to interact, what you can't eat, what you can't eat, it all looks different. Why? Because Jesus has come and Jesus has fulfilled the law. He didn't erase it, but he fulfilled it. But if you've lived your whole life a certain way, I mean, you've just got a culture that you're a part of. And it's kind of hard to tell where the culture begins and is. It's just, it's just normal. It's just ignorance that there's any other way for anything else to happen. It, it comes with its own assumptions, doesn't it? It comes with its own markers and its own um, bitterness and anger when people don't understand why it's so important to do things this way and why they shouldn't do things this way. Well, Peter had all that. Now, Peter followed Jesus, loved Jesus, God used Peter, but Peter had some growing to do, like we all do. There was a change in store for Peter. And so, if you follow the story along, if you skip down to verse 19, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, because you think about something like that, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. So something has happened. Remember God already orchestrated something with Cornelius. God is orchestrating something with Peter. And if you follow the story along, drop down into verse 27. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people because he went with them, this group of people. And this is what he does when he enters the room. He, he's made his way to Cornelius's house. He says to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. So you can't associate with them, but you also can't just visit them. But where's Peter? Peter has found himself at Cornelius's house. Why? Because he had a vision. It took some convincing. God sent uh, some, some guys through a guy named Cornelius. And so he went with them. And now Peter has found himself in this situation and he doesn't quite know what to do. But here's the thing we know about Peter. Peter has no filter, right? 
this is one of my favorite little stories in scripture. I love the way he says it. Um, He says, you know that I'm not supposed to be here. Like this is the way you enter. This is the way you make an entrance into a party, right? Like, you know, we're not supposed to be together. We're not supposed to be hanging out, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Did you see the change? It's subtle. The, the vision was about, I'm not going to eat anything that's impure or unclean. I've never done it. The table is a place where I've only eaten pure things, clean things. I'm not gonna eat anything. Remember what the vision uh, from the angel says, what the Lord says? To, to Peter, he says, don't call anything impure or unclean that I have made clean because he's fulfilled the law. But what does Peter say? Does he say anything? No, what's he say? Anyone. Because what happens, things begin to get personified, don't they? This us and them mentality, these lines, these boundaries that we mark out around the table become so integrated and assumed, they become a part of who we are that it's hard to tell the difference between what someone says, what someone does and who they really are. And we begin to treat them like things rather than people. And Peter is going through something right now, right? I mean, he is by himself, in a place he's never been, doing something he's never done, and he has no filter. And he says, I'm not going to, I'm not used to being here, but God's shown me something. This is vulnerability. I love the humility. Uh, He's not known for humility, but he's saying, he's acknowledging God had to show me this. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent me? He doesn't know what's about to happen. He's just being obedient. Now watch what happens down in verse 33 have a little dialogue. The dialogue ends up like this. So I sent for you immediately. This is Cornelius talking and it was good for you to come. And now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. All right, nobody got that. Cornelius is expecting a message (laughs) from Peter. Peter didn't get that. Peter, all he said was, you're gonna go with him. You're going to go with them. You're going to go into their house. Uh, you're going to have to convince me. Okay, I'm going to say it again. You're going to go in their house. There's going to be some, you're going to have some Sherpas that are going to take you up, uh, up there and show you where it is, right? But he was never given like some crib notes. He was never, you know, sent a direct message. Uh, he didn't have anything downloaded. He didn't think you know, on file. But Cornelius is waiting. He said, there's something that you are supposed to tell us. And I love the beauty of this because it seems like the people that the the prime mover in the story is Cornelius, not Peter. Uh, It it seems the way that Luke tells the story, Cornelius is the one that's continually stirring things up and saying, in a good way, he's, he's continually drawing things out. And so Peter, he goes to what he knows. And this is what Peter knows. Watch what happens in verse 34. Verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I knew, now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Now, when we think of peace, we think of an inner sense of peace. And it is that. But 
what Peter's referring to was, remember, this is a Jewish messianic movement. And what that means is they were looking for a king. They weren't looking for inner peace. They were not looking for self-help. They were looking for a king. And the reason they were looking for a king is because God had promised them a king. They were a nation. And so at this point, he's talking to a Roman centurion who knows only one king. And this was not odd language because the way that Roman, uh, uh, the Rome's, uh, Romans worked was their Caesars or their emperors were gods. And, you know, they, they basically were treated as God. They thought of themselves as God and they were worshiped as gods. And so there was a whole Roman cult religion that actually worshiped Caesar. And this is the way that it played out. And so what does he do? He enters into the house and when he enters into the house, he says that this is not just for us Jews, this table. I know that God had to convince me to come to your house and to come into this place that I would generally not be. I would not associate with you. I would not be a guest of you, but God had to convince me that he does not show favoritism. And the good news, the announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord now unites us under one king and it makes us one nation. And so he takes it out of this earthly nation, this division about like, are you part of Rome? Are you part of Israel? And he says, there's only one true king and that king demands allegiance. And this is what Peter says to him. We'll break it down real quick. We'll read through it. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We just sang a song about um, how beautiful the name of Jesus is. Uh, and uh, I, I really like that song because what it's, uh, what it's relating to us is this message right here. Um, that this is the name, the name of Jesus. Uh, think about it as like, who's the ruler? The ruler that demands allegiance is the king. And who's the king? Who's the ruler? Who's the one that demands allegiance? Well, it's the one, it's the one Jesus. There's only one name. There's only one who's ever done that. And what this tells us is, is that while there are so many divisions around the table, uh, there are so many different things there is one message that unites and defines us. What is that message? Well, I can't say it any better than Peter. I wanna read it to you. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We spent a lot of time talking about that, but watch what happens in verse 39. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead and on the third day and caused him to be seen. What does Peter bring that unites and defines everybody in the room that day? It wasn't any more about what you ate and what you didn't eat. It wasn't about the custom of circumcision or non-circumcision. It was simply whether or not you testify to the name of Jesus. And I think this is a really important thing for us just to hit pause on for just a second. 
because we live in a culture that wants to divine so many different us's and them's. We live in such a world of dualism where you're either this or you're that, you believe this or you believe that, and we want to lump everything in together. And there has been something that's creeped into the church, I think even in more modern day, because I think some of it's just the access of information through technology and maybe it's social media, internet, stuff like that. But there is a divisiveness within the church even. And the divisiveness within the church is speaking to people outside of the church. We actually got an email this past week and somebody that had attended and uh, if it was you and you're in here, I didn't even think about sharing this so I didn't ask for permission but uh, I'm not gonna name any names but uh, somebody shared that they've moved to town to go to one of the schools that are here, that's here in our town and one of the common comments uh, that this person shared was that at their school, they, they talk about how many churches Jonesboro has and um, the other thing was that, that was mentioned was that all the students talk about this because they're coming from all these different places and talking about how many churches are in Jonesboro. And so the, the other commonality is that all these churches are trying to get you to come to their church. And the question from the students was, I don't understand why they're inviting us all to their churches when they can't even get along themselves. And this person sent the email and she was thanking us and for, for the church and the experience and the confidence. She said that the way that it seemed like the environment was is that whether it was working with the church that's up on the hill, that's a different uh, type of church than we are. They, they practice in, in different ways than we do. That we partner with them. Why? Because what defines us is not a denominational moniker, but it's the name of Jesus. And that is the thing that unites the table. That's where the power is. That, that, and, and so I think what has to happen here is to understand that what was, what was happening within Peter was this inner revolution to understand that he had personal biases that he did not even know he had. He had never even questioned them, never even asked a question about whether it was right or wrong to eat with uncircumcised individuals and to eat what was typically viewed as unclean things because this was just something that was so permeated into his cultural understanding that he couldn't even see it from a different perspective. There was no empathy, there was no understanding. And what did God have to do? God had to take him off of his turf, put him in an awkward position and put him on their turf and he had to put him in a situation where he was forced to confront what was essential and what was non-essential. We just had our Journey Basics class and one of the things we always share in there is the way we approach differences in the church and interpretations in scripture because uh, there, there's so many different things in scripture. And, and, and we always throw this quote out uh, and I think it rings true. And this is uh, from Rupertus Meldius. He says, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Our, our hope is that we understand that the thing that unites us is the name of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the authority of his word in our lives. But we also know that there are matters of interpretation in scripture where godly people that love Jesus and love scripture come to different conclusions through their study of scripture and through the Holy Spirit. And the church should be strong enough to look at those matters together and to say, we're united around Jesus and let's come to the table and let's talk about what is essential. And that is essential 
You never deviate from that. But what we always do is we look at the things that we were say as non-essentials. And we look at those things and we say, you know, you know, what does scripture teach us together? And we begin in charity to talk about those things. And unless we can do that, we as a church cannot grow. Uh, we as individuals cannot grow. Spiritual growth is not getting better at defending your position. That is not spiritual growth. Transformation into the image of Christ is not getting better at arguing. It's not with wise and persuasive words is what Paul said. It's with the, through the power of the spirit and the authority of the word. And so what do we do? We, we come around the table and we begin to evaluate what are the boundaries that we didn't even know we had. We didn't mean for them to be there. Nobody designed it that way. And we begin to look at them through the lens of the gospel. What did Jesus do? And a good way to say it is simply this is, do our lines align with Jesus's lines? Do our lines align with Jesus's lines? And I think that that gets us back to understanding the power of the table. And, and that's where, Paul, I mean, where Peter pivots in the next, that's a lot of P's, Peter pivots in the next portion <laughs> of the passage. I could do this all day. Uh, Acts ten forty one. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We talked about that last week. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Through what? Say it class, through his name. So what do we do? We trust the work of the spirit. Watch what happens. We'll finish the story out. We trust the spirit to do the work. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even, uh, look at that word, even. I mean, it's even on the Gentiles. Who in your life would you say, it's even on blank? I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know who it is for you. Even on them? Even them? Yeah. And they were astonished. Why? Because while they were enjoying the table themselves, they never considered that God would want them to become a part of the us. They never considered it. All these things that crept in for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So what you have here is what's typically referred to as the Gentile Pentecost. So just what happened in Acts 2 with the Jews now happens with the Gentiles. And then Peter says this um, to finish it out. Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now he's moving in. He's moving into the house. Hey, you, he used to wouldn't even go in there. Now it's like, hey, I mean, I'm going to be here for a while. You know, we're going to hang out for who knows how long. Everything begins to shift. 
And if you read along the story, you know this was not a one and done thing for Peter. He struggled. Paul had to confront him about this later. Uh, Galatians refers to it. Uh, so, you know, growth is hard. Growth is hard for all of us. But this caused the church to be confronted. The church back at Jerusalem, this is the story they heard. This is what they heard. And it put all kinds of strains on them. So much so that they're bringing the guy that stood up at Pentecost and confronted him about what happened over there at Cornelius' house. And they had a big meeting called the Council of Jerusalem. And they had to make a decision. Are we going to require people to be circumcised are they part of the circumcision party, which I think is a horrible party to be a part of, like, you know? Or are they a part of, that's actually a terminology for the thing. Uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, you know, are they gonna be a part of that or are they gonna be a part of this? And they had to make a decision. And then what ends up happening is in the middle of all that, there was a, a, a truth that was spoken in there, I think, is the guiding light through this whole thing. How do you knock down these barriers? Well, what's, if you skip forward to Acts eleven eighteen, I believe it is. It says that after they had their meeting, when they heard this, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, so then even to the Gentiles, God granted repentance that leads to life. And then Peter says this, goes on to say this, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Um, we're gonna have the praise team, our worship team, I don't wanna call them praise team, I've never called them that in my life, the worship team come out. And as they do, would y'all just grab these, grab these um, partitions, I don't ever know what to call those either. And uh, because I think it's symbolic that the church has to be the one to take these down. The church has to take down the boundaries. The world's not gonna take them down. Nobody else is gonna take them down. We have to become aware of where they are. And we have to say, is there anything that we've put in the way that is making it difficult for people who are turning to God? And we have to be willing to do whatever it takes to move them, to knock them down. Because typically what happens, the longer churches go, the more of those they get, not less. They're, oh, you got it this way, you got it this way, you got it this way, you got it this way. And you get more and you get more and you get more. But for us, what we believe here is that the mission of God lands where tables and roads intersect. And what I mean by that is there are tables that are not in this room right now that are at the end of a road. Some of them are the roads that you live on. They're in the neighborhoods. They're in the places you travel. They're in the company you keep. And yeah, we're gonna invite people to this table. We're gonna invite people to this room. We're never gonna stop doing that. But the gospel was not built on inviting people onto our turf, into an air-conditioned nice facility it, it was built, it was driven by a group of people that were confronted with their own biases, their own boundaries. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, God began to tear down walls and send out invitations. Uh, I'm gonna give you three points of application and we're done. Here's what I would say. To, to actually do this, it takes a different kind of vision. 
It's not just for us, but it's for them. If church is all about for us, then we have failed and we might as well lock our doors. It takes a different kind of vision. It also takes a different kind of leadership. God calls leaders to break down barriers. And this is hard. This is hard for me. I have not done this well. There's some barriers that we have to knock down as a church and be willing to do. And to be a leader means to do that. And that's hard. Peter had to be the one to be put in an awkward situation first, didn't he? God did something privately in his life. God moved into a situation that was difficult. And then he had to say, this is what I think. I think we should not make it difficult. And as he went through that process, barriers were broken down. But to be a leader here does not mean to maintain the status quo. It means to see where are the barriers that need to be broken down. What do we rally around as part of the table? And then ultimately, it's going to take a different kind of plan. And here's what I would say. I just mentioned this earlier. But in detail, as we play this out, I think it's going to mean at their house, not ours. There's something kind of in that, that mindset of uh, pridefulness that says, well, it's gotta be our way, come to our table. Um, and I think that's, a, that's primarily a Western idea, I think, come to our table, do it our way. But to enter into an area where we have to adapt better than we force everybody to adapt to us is a completely different plan, a completely different strategy. And uh, I know, uh, as the email stated earlier this week, that there's, a, there's hundreds of churches in Jonesboro. Um, and I, I believe in all of them. I'm, 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 I pray for all of them regularly. I know so many of the pastors and love them to death. But I mean, just be point blank, I'm not pastor of that church. I'm not pastor of their church. God's put me here right now to pastor this one. And this is what I'd say, our future is not built on building bigger buildings, inviting people to do it our way. It's going to be you and you and you and you being in power to start new works in our city to places that people will never come to this table to go and get uncomfortable on their turf. I don't have a roadmap for all that, but I do know that it's gonna take that in order for other people to come to the table that is built around the name of Jesus Christ and him alone. And so I would like for you to pray along with me that God would reveal what that means for you and what that means for us. Um, I believe that the gospel is still true for every person that hears it. And uh, maybe today is the first time you've heard it and you would like today to be your day. You're like, yeah, that's, I'm in for that. Uh, what I would invite you to do is if you want to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you want to believe in his name today, this is a perfect time to do that. Uh, to say, I, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe everything that Peter just said, not what Dan said. I believe everything Peter said up there. And I want to put my faith, I want to follow Jesus. Um, he's worthy of that. And this is a, a place where you can put your faith in him and become part of that family. And so uh, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So we're going to pray and ask you, ask uh, God to do that in us. And then we're going to ask God to give us direction. And then we're going to go break out and continue the conversation, dig a little deeper in some journey groups. And if you don't have one, we would love for you to get connected to one. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you today that you... Um, you did meet us, God. You knocked down the walls, the barriers. Uh, you did that through your sacrifice. You became very uncomfortable 
for us. And so I pray, God, that you would embody us with the same mindset as a family. Um, I pray for the people that are in here today that are putting their faith and trust in you right now. They're moving away from religion, self-help, uh, sin, God. They're moving away from all this stuff and they're turning to the only name that can save. And so God, let us behave and act and live with so much joy that is worthy of your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's finish up by singing about that name together. Would you stand with me?